1 Timothy chapter 3, from verse 1. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and if then there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Amen. We trust that God will bless His Word to us. Well, we're... Now, as we come to this passage, please do open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy and to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Nigel read the whole chapter, but because of time this evening, we're only really going to focus on the first seven verses of 1 Timothy chapter 3. So, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7 will be our focus. Now, whenever we talk about leadership, whenever I say leadership, I wonder who you think of. Maybe a political leader, maybe a military leader, maybe a sports captain, maybe a manager at work, maybe the CEO of your company. We can all agree that there are great leaders. Queen Elizabeth II, Winston Churchill, Abraham Lincoln, Alex Ferguson, I thought I'd be safe enough ground to say that tonight, or to balance it up, Glen Avon's leader, Gary Hamilton, okay? So we, we have people that we maybe in our minds think of as great leaders, but we can also think of awful leaders wicked leaders, corrupt leaders, pathetic leaders. And because I don't want a lawsuit against me tonight, I'll leave those names blank and you can fill them in. In our world, we are familiar with good leaders and with bad leaders. And in our world, we're also familiar with leadership scandals. And these scandals can impact wherever they happen. They'll impact the people in the community. And so scandal amongst a political leader or with a political leader will bring that leader down. It'll lead to the collapse of political parties and governments. 
to businesses, and yes, churches too. The church is not exempt from failure amongst its leadership. And so, in recent years, we are familiar with the stories of Mark Driscoll through the popular podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and also of Rabbi Zacharias. And closer to home, we don't have to look far to see scandal after scandal, scalp after scalp of Christian leaders who have fallen into disgrace. And so here's the thing. Church leadership affects every follower of Jesus in that community. The leadership of the church in that particular place affects every follower of Jesus. And so whenever someone, an individual, falls into sin, that will hurt some people. But whenever a leader falls into sin, that will hurt many people. And so to think about it, uh, we could think about it like this. Uh, Imagine a a forest and you have one of the the biggest oak oak trees in that forest. Well, whenever the, the grand mighty oak falls, doesn't it bring down with it all the little trees that are around it. All the little, little trees fall too. And so that, it is, that is what it is like with leadership. Whenever a leader falls and falls into sin, it brings damage to lots of people who are around. Now, tonight, what are we going to think about? We're going to think about elders, the, the eldership, the role of leaders within our church. And if you're visiting with us this evening, perhaps tonight's your first night, we are about to elect elders in the coming months, so this is super important for us as a church family. But as we zoom in on elders, we we want to say that this is for the whole church family. It's not just tonight for some, this is for everyone, and we'll explain that as we go through. Now, as we start into this section of Scripture, I want to outline that our denomination permits the ordination of men and of women as elders. Now, within that, there are two opinions. Some congregations will be egalitarian. What does that mean? Well, it means that men and women can both be ordained, and others will be complementarian, meaning that only men are ordained to the office of eldership. Now, I know brothers and sisters who hold a different opinion than I do, but we respect each other. There are good people on both sides of this debate, but tonight, with sensitivity and with respect, I want to state that I believe that what Scripture teaches here is that the rule of elder is reserved only for men. And as I state that, we here at Hill Street, as the leadership team, hold to that view. Now, with that said, I want to move on, but if you do have any questions about that, you would like to talk to myself or talk to Nigel or talk to one of the elders, well, please do stay for a cup of tea and a cup of coffee, and we'd love to talk about that at the end of the service. Now, because of time, as we said, we can't dismantle this entire passage, but we're going to zoom in in verses 1 through 7. But if you are interested in, in the second section that we, we have here from verse 8 through, uh, talking about deacons, what we have uh, translated in the Presbyterian Church to be our committee, Well, here's a little title for you. Elders are the servant leaders. If you're taking notes, this will be really helpful for a definition. Elders are servant leaders, and the deacons, that is the committee, are leading servants. Notice the difference. Elders are servant leaders, and the deacons, the committee, are leading servants. Now, this passage is here right at the end, as Nigel said, of Paul's ministry, because he's writing to the church. Why? Look at chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter 3, verse 15. If I am delayed, 
you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, the church. The church, which is of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. It's Paul making really clear this is how the church is to be organized. He's writing it down, writing it to this church, and the Lord's using him so that we can understand how things are to be structured. And so the church is in no uncertain doubt about how she must conduct herself, how she must be structured. And what we want to say tonight is that biblical leadership within a church is crucial. And godly leaders are essential. Godly leaders are essential to the life of the church. And godly leaders grow in godly churches. So if you think tonight, well, I can zone out. This isn't a sermon for me. This second little phrase, godly leaders grow in godly churches. Godly leaders don't just happen to spring up out of nowhere. They grow in the soil, as it were, of godly churches, churches that prioritize the things that we are going to see in chapter 3 of Timothy. And Alistair Begg, and I think he's right on this, he says this, he says that the church cannot progress beyond the leadership in the church. The church can't progress on above the leadership. And so let's be really honest tonight. There's a, a nonsense belief that Jesus will bless a church with bad leadership. The leaders of a church are responsible, that is the elders, for the direction of the church. They set the agenda. They set the tone under Christ. And so bad leadership will not be blessed by the Lord. Now, sometimes people will say, well, if the Holy Spirit wills, He will move despite the leaders, and that may well be the case, but it's far more likely that He'll pass them by or that He will remove them first. And so, for leaders to use the Holy Spirit as a card of get out of jail free or to relieve themselves of responsibility is not appropriate. Great responsibility is placed upon an elder. And what is vital for each healthy church leadership team is that the leadership of the church is under the authority of Christ Jesus, that they are Christ-centered. And that, it is, that is why Sunday after Sunday in this church, we get up and we preach the Word of God, so that as a church, we are led by God's words, not by my words, not by Nigel's words, not for or by our little thought for today, or our thought for the week, or what we think is relevant, but by God's Word. So the people come here, and the elders have, are committed to this, that people hear God speaking and God leading. And so in our churches, what does the Bible say? That Jesus gets the say. Jesus calls the shots. Jesus sets the priority. Jesus is in charge. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see what Jesus has set as the qualifications of those who should be shepherds in His church. But they're not only the qualifications of an elder. They're the qualifications of every church community, apart from one, and we'll see that. These are the qualifications of what a church should be like. As it were, if we were taking a strand of DNA and putting it under the microscope, these are the things that we want to see within a spiritual family. These are the qualities that should arise, that, that should come to the surface for each of us here in this place. 
And so our churches should be places that you find people like this, children and young people being raised in this way. And then the qualities of leaders must be the qualities of the congregation. And so as we look at this passage, as we have already had it read, it is a challenge tonight. This is a tough mirror for us all to be forced to look into. But that's what we're going to do here this evening. And really we have one point, and it's this, that character is and should be prioritized above competency. So it's character first, character, character, character. And then we'll see a couple of subpoints that flow from this. But tonight, it's all about character. Now, one of the very few shows that I like on TV, uh, apart from Grand Designs and The Apprentice, is The Great British Bake Off. So I'm sure some people here have been watching The Bake Off. Tuesday night, you've had your dinner, you throw on the TV, and you think to yourself, I am starving all over again. I would love a bit of that bread or a piece of that cake. And as you start to watch The Great British Bake Off, you realize that all the candidates, they all have incredible skill at baking. They have their uh, showstopper at the end, some sort of construction that's like, 10 stories tall, made out of icing and jelly, and you're like, how does this whole thing balance, okay? They all have skill, but as the show goes on, what happens? Well, you warm to some and not to others. You want some to win and not others to win, because what starts to emerge, well, their character starts to emerge. And so they all are competent, but really it's their character that starts to, to trump them above all others for you. And in that moment, we focus on character rather than competency. And that's the way it should be here for us. It's always character. Character, character, character. So this is looking past someone's skill set to see their heart. It is putting the value on a heart level rather than on a hand level. Now, of course, ability is important, but not above character. What good is a Christian that can preach the Word of God with eloquent words, but is arrogant, selfish, proud, brings total disrespect upon the message, doesn't it? What good is a man who sits in a session meeting? That's what we call our elders meeting. What good is a man who sits in session, but all that he wants to do is to build a club for him and for his mates? And so, to protect the church from corruption and from disgrace, we have this passage, 15 different qualifications of an elder, 14 of which are about godly living, 14 of which are about character. And so, in a general sense, this is the Christian life for us all. It's all about the heart. It's all heart work. It's rebirth, isn't it? Becoming a Christian is to be born again, given a new heart, new desires, new appetites, putting on new spectacles, as it were. And as we come to this Christian character, this can be like a, a, a big load put on top of us, someone placing a, a ton bag of sand upon our heads as we think about this. But what we got to see is that this is, this is difficult work. We can't just turn up, as it were, to the, the mainframe computer of the Christian life and ask for the latest download and become holy because of that. This takes work. It won't just happen. This is the Christian life. Character, character, character. And so E.M. Bounds says this. This is a quote that I came across during the week. It says, God is not looking for better methods. His method is the church. 
God is looking for better people because people are God's methods. And now, this isn't to place, as we've said, an unnecessary burden upon us, but within the Christian life, there is a requirement for discipline, to be godly, to be holy, to walk in holiness. And so, it's a process. None of us are the finished article. No one will ever fully live up to all of these qualifications. But instead, the question at a heart level is, are we willing? Are we good students? Do we want to learn? The disciples took time to learn, and so we will take time. But are we willing to put the hours in, to sit at the feet of Jesus? And as we explore this tonight, what we want to do and what we want to say is that no one has it all together. If you come along to church and your character is really just something that is, is constructed on the outside, kind of like a, a facade or, or those uh, great billboards that, that cover up buildings that are being reconstructed, if that's your Christian life to, to make everything look good so that everybody thinks that you're great, and then you go home and, and actually you're not that great at all, you go home and, and you kick the cat or you punch pigeons or you do whatever it is that makes you unperfect, right? Don't do that, don't do that, any animal welfare people. But do you know what I'm saying, right? You construct this image on one side and behind it all you're something totally, so, totally different. That is not the Christian life. It's all about character, and it's about living our lives in the light. So God values character above big personalities and above communication skills. And in fact, in this passage, what do we find? Well, every character quality on this list is a window into what God values most in the heart and life of those that He has called to lead every character quality, a window into what God values most in the Christian. And so with that, let's go to verses 2 and verses 3 as we make our way through this. First little sub-point under character is this, our personal life. What does our character look like in our personal life? We read this verse. Now, an overseer, verse 2, that is an elder, must be above reproach. What does that mean, above reproach? It's a, it's a word that we're maybe not familiar with this evening. Well, to be above reproach really means to be above criticism or accusation or blame. And so what that really means is that we are to be well thought of in the church and outside of the church, that there are no dark areas of our life, that we haven't separated following Jesus from how we spend a Saturday night. And from this, from this opening section, this opening sentence phrase in verse 2 really flows all of the other qualities, all of the other qualifications. And so to be above reproach is applicable for each elder, but also for each Christian. That is how we're to live our lives, so that people can't sling mud at us, that we aren't holy on a Sunday and then hellish throughout the week, that we don't appear in the local newspaper consistently that we don't bring shade upon our church family or upon Jesus. And we know these sorts of people, don't we? Because we hear others talking about them. He's some Christian, isn't he? He dresses up to go to church, and to use a Northern Irish phrase, he's half cut on a, Sunday, on a Saturday night. Or he dresses up to go to church, but I wonder, does his wife know what he does behind her back? Or you couldn't trust him as far as you could throw him. You would never believe a word that comes out of their mouth. 
You should live a life that is above reproach. And a life that is above reproach then can be described with all of the following things. You'll see it here. The husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled. So let's, let's just make our way. Let's scroll our way down this. The husband of one wife. What is that? What, what, what does he mean whenever he says that? He's not saying that you have to be married to be an elder. Paul, who writes this letter, doesn't have a wife. It simply means that if you are married, that you should be committed to your wife, a one-woman man. And to make it broader for the church, well, there has to be faithfulness in our marriages. If you are married, then you'll see sober-minded or temperate as the NIV translates it. In reference to alcohol, what do we want of our elders? Well, we want our elders to be in control of their mind. We want them to be as sober as a pilot flying a plane. And so too for our church family, we want our church family to make logical decisions. We want our church family to be in control of our minds and our bodies as we worship with one another. Then we have to be self-controlled. This is a reference to food. And so the elder is not to be uncontrolled in his eating. Here's what Paul Tripp, Paul Tripp is a fantastic book on leadership, 12 Gospel Principles for Leadership. It's a white-covered book if if you wish to read more about this. He says this about the area of self-control. A leader who is not self-controlled cannot say no to himself because he values what he wants more than he values what God wants for him. Self-control, valuing what we want more than what God wants for us. Then he has to be, as the ESV translates it, he has to be respectable, and so does the NIV. He has to be respectable. He is also to be hospitable. And I came across this little phrase, that means that there's to be something of a hospital about him. And what does that mean? That, that the elder should be like a, a physician. He should care for people. He should be open for people. And to be hospitable doesn't mean that you need a big house. It just means that you need a big heart. And it's not what we've been trying to generate our culture here at Hill Street, a culture of of welcome, a culture of hospitality. You see how the elder emerges from this soil? It doesn't just happen. It comes from the soil of the church family, the, the priorities of the church family, and so this should be one of them. He should be respectable. His character should commend the message of Jesus Christ, just like every church member should. And now here we find the the one that isn't part of our character. He should be able to teach. Now, that can be an intimidating sentence, but it really means that he, he must know what he's talking about whenever it comes to Scripture. A man of the Word, able to pass the Word on to others. And then we'll see, he goes on, that this, this person shouldn't be violent. They shouldn't be a bully. They shouldn't be pushy. They shouldn't be a dictator. He should be gentle, not quarrelsome. Why is it that often in the church, and thank the Lord it's not here, but in churches across the land, what can we find? We can find some of the most crooked and the most quarrelsome people in eldership. Our churches should not be like a cage fighter's arena. It should be gentle places. Not wanting a quarrel, not looking for someone to fight with. Again, Tripp brings wisdom to this. He says, a leader who is quarrelsome, 
values being right and in control more than he values what God says is right in his heart and in his life. This is challenging stuff for us, isn't it? As we start to gaze into this mirror, as we start to think about our church and what's the DNA of this place, and as we start to then cast our eye around and think, who, who is it? Who is it that we could select and, and have as the next batch of elders? This is, this is difficult. Then he goes on, not a lover of money. So elders are to be controlled not by money or alcohol, but instead by the crook of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so should our church. How could we summarize this? Well, there should, the elder should not be ruled over by any of his passions, and neither should we. There should be no passion for fighting or for anger. There should be not the, the passion for lust. He should not be ruled over by a passion for alcohol. He should not be ruled over by a passion for wealth. A Christian leader is one who has come under the authority and the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so every Christian, every Christian here tonight, this is the culture from which good leaders emerge. But this is challenging. And then it, it develops. We'll see, it goes on past the personal life to talk about the character within your family life, verses 4 through 5. And this is really talking about what are you like behind closed doors? That little illustration that we used earlier. Are you, are you beautiful on the outside and behind closed doors? Are you an absolute menace? Well, look at verse 4. This, this is hard for us. Look, verse 4, the elder, he must manage his own household well and with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now, this we must understand for you, as if you're a father here tonight, this does not give you permission to be a bully in your home. Our heavenly father is not a bully. We as children love our Heavenly Father. Why? Because He loves us. Our Heavenly Father gives us freedom to let us flourish, to explore, to enjoy good things. Our Heavenly Father gives us permission to ask hard questions, to make mistakes, to, but He loves us completely, and He loves us fully. And so, this qualification is simply saying that a man who is going to step into the leadership of the church family, first and foremost, must be able to manage his own little family, his own little household. If a man cannot manage to look after the affairs of his house, to care and to protect, if he cannot lead and guide, if he does not have the respect of his children, then what sort of mess will that person make in church leadership? And so, our family life does say something about our spiritual life. We know what it's like. The father in the home, what does the father do? Well, the father sets the, the expectation. The father sets the, the culture of the home. He creates an aura in the home, an aura. Now, as we talk about this, let, let me be really sensitive. I don't, I don't want to be unsensitive tonight because for some, you may have rebellious children, children who have grown up and who have turned their back on loving parents and godly parents, and they have made their own sinful decisions. That's not what we're talking about. But a father in the home creates, creates an aura. 
And so it is in the church with leaders. The leader creates an aura. They create expectations. They foster good qualities. They let people flourish and explore and enjoy and love the Lord more clearly than what they did before. So here's a challenge. Would people in your household be surprised if you became an elder? Or would they say yes? We totally understand why. Men, if you cannot care and manage your little family, don't even think about trying with God's family. And then lastly, verses 6 through 7, we see how it unfolds a little step further, character in the social and or in the working life. What does he say here? Well, he says, well, the elder, the person that's going to come into leadership shouldn't be a new convert. That makes sense, doesn't it? No point throwing someone who's uh, just in, as it were, uh, into the deep end. It would be like setting the, the, the apprentice bricklayer to go and build a grand castle or mansion. They wouldn't do a great job. And so it shouldn't be a new convert. But the person that it should be should be well thought of by outsiders. You see it there, verse 7. He must also have a good reputation. Those whom we rub shoulders with with those who we work alongside, those who see us outside of the walls of the meeting house. How do we conduct ourselves in the work meeting? Are we a dodgy dealer? Are we the one who lies to get ahead? Here's one. How do we conduct ourselves on the sports field? Or how do we conduct ourselves on the side of a sports field whenever our team perhaps are losing? As an employee, what sort of work do we produce? Are we known for being a lazy person, a person who takes shortcuts, who cheats their way through? And so you can see the challenge here tonight, can't you? What really Paul is getting at is that from a church family, within the DNA of that church, they should follow Jesus wholeheartedly. There's no aspect of their life that is closed off that as a Christian, you follow Jesus every day of your life, and you follow Him in every way, that there are no closed doors, as it were, that, that you don't pretend to be something here on a Sunday, and then you're different on a Wednesday night whenever you're with your pals. We are consistent all the way through. Consistent all the way through. And then from this soil should grow these mighty oaks of leadership. It shouldn't be a surprise that we could elect godly men into the office of eldership if our church culture is godly. And so as we think about these qualifications, I want to say this, sons, you should want your father to be this kind of man. And young men in the faith, this is what you should aspire to. And every man that is here tonight, this is what you should look like as you follow the Lord Jesus. And women, this is what you should want for your sons. And wives, this is what you should want for your husbands. And if you're single here tonight, this is what you should look for if you are looking. This is what you should look for in a spouse. 
and in a broader sense in the church family, this is what we should see. This is what we should see in each one of us within our culture. If we want godly leaders, we need godly churches. For from godly churches will come godly leaders, leaders who pray, leaders who will move the church forward, who will look and search for a more authentic, gospel-shaped, Christ-exalting community. And so as we close here tonight, do you feel like your entire life has been put under the microscope? Because that's how I felt this week as I read through these qualifications. Every area, no holes barred, no area off limits to Jesus Christ. 14 different characteristics of what it means to be a, a godly man that, and then godly people. And so tonight, if you thought of your Christian life a little bit like this, coming into church tonight, you thought of your Christian life like a spotless white t-shirt. Perhaps now after going through this passage, you feel like your t-shirt is a filthy rag and falling apart. Friends, no one will ever fulfill these qualifications perfectly. Each of us have numerous sins to confess tonight. And I think that's where this passage takes us, isn't it? This passage tonight should humble us. It should take us low tonight. And we're going to do that in just a moment. We're going to, we're going to reflect as, as we do come before the Lord in prayer and ask for, for His forgiveness. But look at verse 1. Here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, being an elder, he desires a noble task. Because in that, if you desire tonight as a man to be an elder, you're desiring to be brought high. To be brought high to do what? To be brought low. Those who are elders in our church, you have been brought high. You have been esteemed with this position. To do what? To be brought low. Our elders should be the, the servants amongst us. And so there's nothing higher to aspire to than to be brought down lower. Leadership in Christ's church is humble service, and leadership is costly ministry because we follow in the footsteps of our servant king, the one who stooped lower than anyone else to do what for his church? To serve his bride, the church, to save his church, to love his church to lead his church, to guide his church, and to grow his church. And so tonight, what, what is the conclusion of all of this? Well, we want to pray that our DNA, our soil here is godly, so that we grow godly leaders. But we also want to stick close to Jesus, don't we? All of us here saying, Lord, I have, I have fallen short, but thank you that you forgive me tonight, that you set my feet upon the rock that you are, and that you clothe me in your righteousness again. How we need this. So let's take a few moments in silence, and then Nigel will lead us in our prayer of intercession.